Hi, I'm Randy Kleiner. And I'm Kaylee Smith-Westbrook. As the co-founders of Series Fest, we welcome you to Breaking In, a Series Fest podcast. In 2015, Series Fest began its mission to champion and empower artists at the forefront of episodic storytelling by providing year-round opportunities for creators and industry experts to connect, collaborate, and share stories. We are thrilled to expand our mission with this podcast as we talk to working professionals in television and gain insight, advice, and hear their journey of breaking in. Today, I'm speaking with Shelley Williams. Profiled as Variety's 2020 Top Broadway to Watch, Shelley is a director committed to cultivating new musicals and devised work with authentic representation on stage and off. She's directed at regional theaters and festivals across the country and has a long history of work on Broadway in Rent, Aida, and Motown the Musical. She is currently directing the upcoming Broadway revivals of Aida and The Wiz, as well as premieres of Mandela the Musical, Indigo, and the recently announced Hidden Figures the Musical, which is currently in development. Passionate about pairing social justice with the arts, Shelley is a founding member of Black Theatre United, has been a member of Broadway Inspirational Voices for over two decades, and serves on the board of Broadway Care Equity Fights AIDS. Shelley is also the author of the children's book, Your Legacy, A Bold Reclaiming of Our Enslaved History, which was recently published by Abrams Books for Young Readers and is currently in development to become an animated series co-executive produced by Gabrielle Union and Dwayne Wade. Shelley joined us back at Series Fest seasons two, three, and four when she directed the live readings of our Storytellers Initiative winning scripts. Hi, Shelley. Hi, Kaylee. It's so good to see you. Oh, it is so refreshing to see your beautiful face. It's been too long. I know. I miss you. I feel, well, it's definitely been over two, I think it's been two years since I've seen you in person, which is sad. Yeah. Um, but you have had a very exciting couple of weeks. You recently became a published author. Congratulations. Thank you. It's so crazy. I, I feel like I still have that new car smell where I'm just like, oh my gosh, everything still, it feels incredibly effervescent. Every review is very exciting and um, it's been a, it's been a glorious couple of weeks. That's amazing. And you, when you were doing publicity for that, you also had another big announcement of what you're directing next. Yes, I am directing Hidden Figures, the musical for Disney Theatrical. And that has been um, a really, really delicious secret that I've been sitting on for a while. So it's really nice to get it out there into the world. Oh my gosh. I was so excited when I, when I heard you announce that I was like, Oh my God, it's like my favorite movie of the past decade. I could watch it over and over again. And I just can't wait to see it as a musical. Cause you know, as you know, I'm a musical theater geek at heart. So very excited to, to see it come to life and see what you do with it. Oh, I'm thrilled. I've, I've been in conversation with Margaret Lee Shetterly who wrote the book and she's just a treasure trove of knowledge. And there's a lot that we can explore in the musical that that was not in the film. So I'm really excited for the audience to discover parts of the story that they don't know. So it's going to be a great experience. That's amazing. Well, I do want to talk more about that. And I want to talk more about the book. But I thought we'd start because you actually started as a performer. Yes. Yes, you, you've 
I saw you on Broadway when I was like a teenager and then, you know, we met and became friends and it wasn't until years later I realized I was listening to you on the Aida soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, I've had a, a quite an interesting winding road to get to where I am, but it, every step of it has been pretty incredible. I started out, you know, with the school to be um, an actor. And I did, you know, I worked everywhere. And then I finally got to Broadway. Rent was my first Broadway show. Wow. And uh, I yeah, it was really incredible. I did the first national tour, um, which came out six months after the Broadway show opened. And then I was put into the Broadway show and became the production dance supervisor and oversaw all of the North American productions and then helped put up international companies. So for a while there, I was overseeing seven companies of rent around the world. And then I decided I really missed performing. And I auditioned for Aida and was fortunate enough to be in the original company of that show, which was a bucket list <laughs> um, item for me. And when that show closed, um, right before the show closed, I realized that my desires had changed and I wanted to be a different kind of storyteller and be on the other side of the table and help shape the stories that were being told and especially help shape the way that women were being told in stories and black women more specifically. Mm. What was that transition like and how did you make that transition? And was it really as, you know, you knew you wanted to be a director or when you were talking about wanting to be on the other side of the table, were you also exploring producing and writing as well? I, I knew I wanted to be a director. Um, that was clear that I was like, I want to be the one who can help shape these stories and who can have a say on what is and isn't happening. So I did know that pretty clearly. And I had, over time, been asked to assist a number of directors while I was working. And as, you know, Byerkley likes to say, everybody knew you were going to be a director, but you. Like, people mm. would say, hey, do you want to assist me on this? And Wayne Salento would be like, I'm doing this, come assist me. And I had no idea, but they were actually grooming me. <laughs> Um, but when I eat a closed, uh, the story is I was at John's Pizzeria and it was after a big actors fund event, a concert that I had been a part of. And I was talking with my buddy, Stephen Aramis, and he said, you know, I eat his closed. Like, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, Stephen, I, you know, I really want to be a director. And I just like, I don't know how to do it. Like, I don't want to go back to college. I just am still paying off my loans the first time I'm in my thirties. Do I want to start all over? And he said, you should do exactly what Joe Mantello did. You're at a big industry party. Just start telling everybody you're a director. Mm. And he's like, you know, you're an actor, sell it. And so I started people was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm directing. And I said it with such confidence that word got out. Like a couple of days later, I got a call from a friend who said, hey, I have a friend who's directing a project. I'd like to recommend you. I heard you're directing now. And the first show that I directed was with your sister. So no way. That very first <gasps> yes. I did not yes. know this story. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea. Like, I mean, that show was so beautiful and you did such an amazing job directing it. I for sure assumed you had been doing it, a, you know, a very long time, which clearly you were in the industry a very long time. So um, what an amazing story. It was, it was pretty wild. I did, you know, go to the director's lab at Lincoln Center. I did that mm. program. I assisted every human that was doing a show. And I was like, hey, do you need an assistant? Um, so I, I did, you know, pay my dues and really try to learn as much as I could before, you know, helming my own production. 
by the time I got there, I felt incredibly prepared. As an assistant director, what do you feel your job is? First, to really sit and get inside the director's vision. So to be a really, really good listener. And I think, you know, make sure that your ears are paying attention to everything. Because you are going to be the last ears next to the director. You're going to be, you know, really, you know, their best friend through the project by being on it. Remembering the little things like, you know, such and such as a costume fitting tomorrow. Or remember that the musical director wanted to rehearse that number for five more minutes. Or here are those three other notes that you wanted to give out before we did the scene again. You know, there's all of those things being that knowing that someone really has my back is my favorite part. And then I really do spend a lot of time with the assistant directors talking through the scenes Mm. because I want them to see what I'm seeing, especially if they're going to go on to note the show. I want them to really get inside the vision so that it is, if there's any questions that they have, I want them to, you know, open those questions up and let's talk about it. You know, if they have any thoughts about things, You know, I am not afraid for people next to me to be smart and creative. Like, you know, I I really do value um, having those conversations because they're going to have a different perspective. They're a different human with different experiences. There are moments when we have to move and I, you know, can't take in any more information. Um, But for the most part, what I'm looking for is someone who's extremely organized, someone who's really creative. And someone who doesn't want to be an assistant Mm. forever. You know, I want to know that you have a vision for where you want to go because my job is to help you get to your, you know, pursuing things that you love. So, you know, I love it when, you know, I'm sitting next to, I mean, I only work with people who say, I want to do this. I'm working, I have a regional theater production coming up or I'm applying for this, or this is the dream show that I want to do. And then I can think, oh my goodness, how can I help you get there? Mm. After you had been assistant directing shows and you did piece, what was the next step to get you moving towards where you are now? Well, it it was a lot of, I did some regional theater Mm. um, and, and getting my, you know, my feet wet doing big productions in a very short amount of time. Um, re-envisioning shows is really interesting. You know, I am doing a couple revivals coming up, but my, you know, my passion has always been new work. But, but there is a real discipline to re-envisioning a show and learning what is really precious, what an audience wants to see, what they want to maintain, and the places where you can grow their expectations. Um, and it's a delicate balance. There are some moments that are really sacrosanct and you're like, we have to keep this. And then there's some things that you can reimagine. Um, so I really, I really enjoyed doing that. I did that. I did the first production, the first licensed production of Hairspray. Oh, and that was that. super fun. And Mark and Scott came to see it, which was really great. And we got to dinner afterwards and we, they were like, oh my gosh, I never imagined this number like this. And mm. so it was really great to sit down, you know, with them and also know that I honored their vision for the show, but I also was able to bring myself to it as well. Um, so I did, you know, you know, those kind of like the canon shows, you know, a few of those, but really what I wanted to do was new work. So, you know, I did a lot of NAMP shows. I've done a lot of readings. It was more important to me to find those voices 
that were not being amplified, the stories that were not, that people really weren't interested in hearing, but I thought had great value and do my best to get them into the world. And sometimes I was not successful, but, but, um, and I think that, you know, some of the shows that I worked on were probably, you know, five and 10 years too soon. You know, people would say to me all the time, you know, is this commercial? (laughs) And I was like, if it's good, it's commercial. You know, well, people in Iowa want to see it. And I was like, well, I can't speak for the state of Iowa, but I can (laughs) tell you that if you make something that is quality and has value, you have to believe in that. And I think for a long time, especially in commercial theater, there's, there was this idea of chasing an audience instead of creating for an audience. And, and I've never compromised um, in my passion to create art that has value and that I truly believe in. I love that. That's beautiful. You just mentioned that you had some shows that were not successful. What do you think were like the biggest lessons that you took from those moments that you didn't deem as success? Well, I, I thought they were successful, but they weren't picked up. Got it. Got it. You know, I, you know, I thought they were successful in, in, in so much as we did everything we could to tell a beautiful story. Mm. Um, but I, you know, at that moment, the gatekeepers did not see the commercial viability in the show. You know, a couple of years ago, I did, um, a show that was about Emmett Till. It was a musical at Nant and not one theater picked it up. And I was so sad because it was such an incredible story about this young kid who loved to play games, who loved comic books, who was so joyful. And it also told the story about the young men who ended up killing him. (laughs) You know, it was like, you could see this confluence of these two worlds coming together. And everyone was so scared to touch it. I remember talking to theater owners and they're like, yeah, uh, we kind of don't know what to do with it. And it, it's, it, it was, it's a beautiful, beautiful story. And I was sitting on a, a NAMPT panel. I was talking, you know, I think it was last year. And I said, can you imagine how proud you would be at your theaters if you had told the story of Emmett Till before George Floyd died? Mm. Can you imagine the impact you could have had around the understanding and changing the hearts and minds of the value of a black life. If you had been so brave, I'm ashamed that none of you were brave enough to tell the truth. Emmett Till lived. He was a 14 year old boy who was assassinated for being a kid. And that young woman lied and they killed him and he never ever had justice. Can you imagine if art was telling those stories, if we were telling our truths, what a different place we would be in as a country, as a community. Um, So to me, that show deserves to be told, you know, that, that story deserves to be told. It was successful to me because I did my very best. Yeah. But I feel like, you know, the industry let me down. What was everyone's response when you said that on the panel? (laughs) 
<laughs> it was a Zoom. Oh, <laughs> so, like, right. it, was, it was like, you know, during 2020. Right. Um, but I did have the pleasure of looking at all their faces. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, what could they say? Yeah. You know, I mean, to make good art requires you to be brave. Mm. And I think it's some, you know, I think sometimes we forget that. Yeah. You know, like I, I always say, if I'm going to take a show, it's got to scare me a little. Like, I'm going to go, like, I can't do that. <laughs> and if I like think if someone's like, do you want to do the show? And I'm like, oh, I can do that in my sleep. The answer is no. Right. Because how am I going to grow from that? Mm. And so, you know, I think that, uh, I think the industry requires us to be brave. I think to make art, I think the base requirement is to be brave. Um, and I think when we start doing that, that's when we get back to being, you know, leaders. And that's when we get back to, to really art serving its function of expanding our humanity and expanding our, our vision and dreams for the future. Since we're on the topic, um, you're a founder or co-founder of Black Theater United. Yes. Tell me a little bit. I've oh, I've read a little bit about the organization online and what you what you've posted, um, but I'd love to hear more about the organization and what you guys are doing. Oh, Black Theater United um, came into my life at, at a time that I needed it most. Mm. Um, it was you know right after George Floyd passed away or was killed, I should say, and. I got a cold call from Audra McDonald, whom I'd never met. Um, and I got a call and it said, you know, Shelly, this is Audra McDonald. You know, I, we've never met. Michael McElroy told me to give you a call. There are a few of us who are getting on a call tomorrow night. Can you join us? Um, and she told me some people that were going to be there. And, and I said, you know, yes, of course. And, you know, the, the mission of the call was to see what we could do because we are not helpless we are capable, we're hurting, but each one of us has our own voice and we have platforms and we have the ability to raise awareness. And so we got on that call and it was Billy Porter and Vanessa Williams and Audra and, and Brian Stokes Mitchell, Natasha Williams, Tamara Tooney, Michael McElroy, Norm Lewis. Um, there were you know, 19 of us, Lilius White, uh, 19 of us on this call, Wendell Pierce. And we did a lot of crying because we were just in so much pain. And then it very quickly shifted to what are we going to do about it? We've got people dying on the streets. Mm. That's our first mission to deal with that. But we also have an industry that has been complicit in demonizing Black people. And we have to deal with that. We've been perpetuating stereotypes and myths. And we have to stop that. We have to take responsibility as an industry for the harm that has been caused. There are dots you can connect from the entertainment industry and the false impressions that people have, that we have collectively about each other. And not just Black people. You know, all marginalized groups have been victimized and, and politicized and you know, oh, goodness gracious, um, painted into a box by the entertainment industry. Um, 
and and we have to take we have to have those conversations we have to say no more um so we started talking that sunday night and we haven't stopped we talk every sunday night wow and and we immediately said okay what's the first thing that we can do we had a phone call with stacy abrams and she said we have to get going on the census because this is how we are counted. This is how our communities change. So we partnered with her. We sat down with uh, Cheryl and Eiffel and we were like, you run a powerful, you know, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. We are creating an organization. Can you talk with us? So we did a town hall with her. We did a private talk with her about the best ways to construct our organization. And then we immediately started on a strategic plan all the while you know, working to, you know, raise awareness about the census, raise awareness about voting. We did a number of political campaigns that were more about raising awareness and encouraging people to use their voice. And then we began to look at our industry and think about, you know, what it is, what kind of impact we can make. And we partnered with the Center of Diversity, Inclusion and Belonging at NYU Law School. And uh, Kenji Shino and David Glasgow worked with us to uh, create a summit and we invited leaders from our, you know, Broadway industry, producers, theater owners, directors, designers, unions, composers, lyricists, musical directors. We invited, you know, over a hundred people to sit down in the summit and break into cohort groups and say, we need to change structures. We need to change our habits and we need to create accountability. And this is going to be the new deal for Broadway. And we have, you know, over 150 signatories um, that came out it, at the end of August, just as Broadway was beginning to open. And um, we have another cohort of about 50 signatories that have uh, that are going to sign on very shortly. And this new deal uh, is going to continue. Our summits are going to continue for the next five years. And we are determined to create change. We cannot go back. I'm so proud of you. And, and you are always taking a step forward and you're not just talking about it. And I just admire that so much. And um, it's really in- incredible the work you're doing. So thank you. So what are you working on right now outside of Hidden Figures? A few things. Um, I'm headed to London on Monday to do a lab of Mandela the Musical. Um, and we will be at the Young Vic next year, but we're doing a lab there um, for the next couple of weeks. And then uh, I come back and I am doing a children's theater show at the Kennedy Center. One of my favorite authors in the world, Jacqueline Woodson. Um, there is nothing of Jacqueline Woodson's that they could ask me to do that I wouldn't do. I was like, yes, they're like, it's children's theater. I'm like, I don't care. Um, <laughs> I love her so much. Um, and then I head to Chicago, I'm co-directing the notebook with Michael Greif. And so I head to Chicago to, um, premiere that at Chicago Shakespeare. No way. I didn't know that either. How are you going to do the, how are you going to do the rain scene? Oh my gosh. Is there going to be rain? Is there going to be rain? Tell me there's going to be rain. There's going to be rain. (laughs) Oh my God. I love it. I, I mean, I think I had read somewhere that that was being turned into musical, but I had no idea you were involved. How fun is that? Oh, it's glorious. Ingrid Michaelson has written the most glorious score. Becca Brunstetter, the most incredible book. 
it, it is really a stunning, stunning show. Wow. And where, where are we at with Aida? What's going on with Aida? When is it coming out? I come right back from the notebook and then I go into a series of labs for Aida. We're actually now going to open in Europe. That was meant to be our, our second um, stop. Um, And then, you know, the hope is that we will then go probably to London next because it never had a premiere in London and, and Tim and Elton really want it to premiere in London and as do I, and then it'll probably make its way back here. So it's a, a different route than we anticipated, but I'm really excited that this show still has life and I cannot wait to get back into rehearsals. Oh, I'm so excited. I've always loved that musical. What did it take from you to go from, I know you were directing NAMPT workshops and assisting. What was the next step for you getting these bigger shows as a director? So I, I actually took a couple years off, which mm. was not the plan, um, but I had a hard time getting pregnant. And so I had to take some time off. And then when I got pregnant, I never stopped getting pregnant. Like my children <laughs> are 14 months apart. So like I was perpetually pregnant for two years. Um, so I was kind of out of the game for three years. Mm. And it was, you know, so painful to even think about. I had worked so hard and got to like, I was right up to the edge of like getting my big shows. And then I took a big break. Um And then here I was, you know, I just had a baby. I was 40. I was like, okay, now I'm back. And, you know, very fortunate for me, I found out that Motown the Musical was coming into Broadway. And uh, my friend Charles Randolph Wright was directing. And I, you know, asked him if he had an assistant. And he didn't. And what was really incredible is the show wasn't doing an out-of-town tryout. And I with two babies at home could not have gone out of town. Right. Um, but I was very fortunate. The show was coming straight into New York and I was able to be the associate on that show and bring it in, which got me like back into a Broadway theater, back into tech, back into like, you know, really full on, like back into the process, you know, on a new show, which is extraordinarily challenging. And then you know, we did the tours and then I took over the tours. So I really just kind of got back in it, um, kind of taking a step back and mm. going back to being an associate. Mm. And it was humbling and it was hard, but it was necessary, you know, to just get back in there and people go, oh, Shelly, I haven't seen you for a while. Right. <laughs> yes, no one's seen me for a while. So it's really <laughs> great to get back in there. And the the entire time that I was away, I've always had mentors Tom Schumacher has been, you know, a mentor of mine since I began directing. He was actually the first person I sat down with um, when I directed the first actual production that I directed when I became a director was Aida. Mm. And I sat down with Tom, um, oh, 20, you know, I don't know, maybe it was like 15, 16 years ago. And I said, you know, we're doing the show and I'd like to make some changes. And I'd like to run those by you. And he was like, um, Okay. And so I submitted all my changes and he said, I want you to try them all. I'm going to approve them all. I don't agree with them all, but I want you to do them. And I'll send someone from Disney to come see it. And he was true to his word. He sent someone, you know, to come see the show and they loved it. 
And we had a great conversation, you know, afterwards. I may or may not have had a videotape of the show. Um, (laughs) So we got to, you know, kind of talk about some of these moments. And every time I would leave his office, he'd say, you know what, why don't you come back in like three months and we'll do a check-in. And so I like the joke that Tom became like my dentist. Like we would meet like every three to six months for like 15 years, you know, wow. like it just never stopped. It was just like, I'd walk out and I'd make an appointment with his assistant and then I'd show back up. And during the course of that time, you know, I had two children. I was like, how do I get back into the game? You know, all of these things, he would sit down and he'd say to me, you know, did you look at the numbers from last week? You know, how the weeklies are doing for the show. Do you know that this, this show is not going to run because the weekly's too high? Like just talking to me about like all kinds, we would talk about things all over the map. Um, and I, I, I uh, Motown went out and there was a, a time I was asked to actually reconceive the show. And I took the show down from nine trucks to five trucks and, wow. and made it, it was a huge, huge reconception. And Tom knew all about that. And we talked about, you know, the pros and cons of, of, you know, what it means to take a show and, and maintain the essence of it, but how to make sure that people in some of these smaller markets are not getting robbed of the production that they expect because they mm. deserve to see beautiful theater. Um, so I, you know, I worked really hard to, to maintain the beauty of the show and the integrity of the show. And I came into Tom's office, you know, I got a, I got a really interesting call from his assistant that said, can you come see Tom tomorrow? And usually the meetings are like, can you come see Tom, you know, in March of 20, like it's they're always yeah. far out. And I was like, yeah, sure. And I came in that day, you know, the next day and he said, so we're doing this revival of Aida. And I have been running around town saying like, Hey, I'm thinking about Shelly Williams directing Aida. What do you think? And every time I ask someone, they're like, Oh my gosh, this is the greatest idea. And I realized I need to actually get to you before the rumors get to you. Do you want to direct Aida? And I was like, what? Like I was blindsided. Blindsided. I had no idea that was coming. Wow. No idea. That's amazing. Yeah. And then he said to me, I got to get frozen open. So we can't talk about this for a year. (laughs) And I literally waited a year before we had a subsequent conversation. And I was like, did I dream that? Did that actually happen? Like he was heading to Denver. You know, like we literally did not talk about it. And as soon as frozen open, I went in and we, it was Memorial Day weekend and I sat in his office. No one else was in the Disney office except his assistant and me and Tom. It was completely empty. And we talked about it for hours. It was amazing. Oh, that's so incredible. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I guess, you know, we talk, we've talked to a lot of people about breaking in and breaking into the industry. And there is no shortcut. It's a lot <laughs> of patience. It's a lot of work. And, um, you know, whether, I mean, Clearly, this podcast started with us mostly talking about television, and now we're expanding into other mediums, which is so fun. You're the first person really talking about theater. And so, yeah, I mean, no matter what what medium you're in, it is a marathon or a triathlon. It is definitely not a sprint. And um, But it's so incredible to watch your career 
and to hear hear it back and I don't I didn't know most of these stories so it's it's absolutely amazing and it's so funny because I feel like you've been there for so many of them so I'm surprised <laughs> I'm still surprising you with stories no I'm like oh I, I mean I knew pieces of that but I didn't know that oh that's that's amazing um and then we I we went out to lunch and then you're like oh yeah I wrote this book so let's talk about the book because it just came out and everyone should go buy it yeah I wrote a book it was, it was, um, I did not expect to write a book. Um, and it's so funny because someone years ago said to me, are you a writer? And I was like, no, no, not at all. Um, and when I, I did a website recently, um, and the, the gentleman doing the website said, you know, what would you like for your title to be? And I was like, oh my gosh, I hate all those hyphenates. <laughs> like, I wanna, and I went, oh, I'm a storyteller. And whatever medium I'm in, that's all I'm doing. I'm telling stories, whether it's behind the camera, on stage, and now, you know, with the pen. And so that made me feel really comfortable. And when I think about writing this book, it really did come about because I wanted to talk to my children about slavery and I didn't know how. Hmm. It was so painful for me to think about how I learned about it in school. And it was still like traumatizing for me to even think about that now. And I just didn't want them to have that experience. And so I knew I wanted them to hear it from me, but I, I didn't know how to start. And I started looking for like any kind of a shortcut book you know, and every time I'd be like, oh, this is close. And then I'd be like, oh, but then I have to go down that rabbit hole. Like, you know, I was like, how do I do this? And so I started just kind of doing my own research to find my way in. And, you know, what I realized pretty quickly is that I didn't want to tell my children a story about slavery. I wanted to talk to my children about their enslaved ancestors. And, and that distinction was everything for me you know that that's a completely different story talking about who they were you know instead of what happened to them instead of what they endured those conversations are vital and necessary but I think you know where to begin is to dignify them with their humanity with the fullness of their story and and their really acknowledging their accomplishments and their brilliance and their ingenuity and their courage and their grace and their dignity. And the next conversation for me will be about what it is that they endured in their lives so that we could be here. Mm. But it was all of those qualities that they held in themselves that made it possible for me to be here for my children to be here. And so it went from a story that I was really nervous to tell to one that I couldn't wait to tell. And I, and I realized that if I were, if I was struggling with this and I'm, you know, a grown woman, you know, I had my kids at 39 and 40, you know, I've got some life experience on me um, that there were other people that must be having this same question about when and how, and, and, and I, feel like I found a joyful way to introduce them to their ancestors. And I wanted 
I wanted more kids to have that. And I wanted to take away the fear because we must tell our stories. We must, that's how we grow. And so I, I, I wrote the book. Wow. And did you have a vision for it being published or did you really feel like you were writing this just for, for your girls? And what was that next step and process to, you know, getting it out there into the world? Uh, I, I, I did feel like I have an idea for a book and I felt like other people probably need this too. Right. I talked to some people and I'm like, have you had this conversation? They're like, no, please. I'm not going to, oh my gosh. You know, like people are really shying away from it. And again, like I run towards the thing that makes me scared. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was like, no, I, I really want to do this. And I actually spoke with an agent about it who said to me, you should just focus on directing. <laughs> and it was about a year later that I was getting wooed by CAA and I was chatting with the agent and the agent said, is there anything else you've ever wanted to do? I was like, well, there is this book I wanted to write. And it's so funny, Kaylee, because in that moment, I had this kind of pang of like somebody else has already told you this is a bad idea. Mm. So I almost didn't say anything. But I went ahead and shared the idea of the book. And he was like, that's brilliant. Mm. You, 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 you have to tell that story. And then when I met with the literary agent, she was like, let me tell you something. You write that book. You give it to me in July and I will sell it in September. And that's exactly wow. what happened. It wow. was like clockwork. It was unbelievable. That's amazing. But, I mean, it's so frustrating when someone tries to put you in a box and tells you to just direct and tells you not to do something because that's no one's position. I love that you actually found agents and people that encouraged you to do it and told you to go do it and then helped you because honestly, I feel like that's kind of rare to hear stories like that these days. So that's, that's really amazing. Um, and the book is incredible and beautiful. And, um, so I'm so glad you went and did it. Thank you. And I I don't tell you, it was, I mean, imposter syndrome is real, right? Mm. You know, like when you grow up, you know, I started out as a musician all, you know, my life, my dad's a professional musician and I danced for years. When you grow up, when you do something every single day and you know the rigor and work of that, when you step into another field in which you have not done that, it feels false. Hmm. I was like, do I just get to write a book? Like, is that a thing? Like people actually like study literature and they go to like school for that. And, and when I realized that like I, my superpower is that I'm a mom. I know what my kids need. I know that as a human being, I was struggling with something that I wanted to be, you know, empowering for my children. And that if I have found a way to do this, then I want to share this gift. And that gave me the courage to step into this moment with boldness Mm. and not sit in the oh my goodness, I can't. And even when writing the book, I thought of it as theater because that's the thing that I know. So I thought about like, what should this set look like? Mm. Like there's a page in the book where it's a city, it's it's a cityscape. And I wrote in the notes and there's no dialogue on that page, but I wrote in the notes, I want to show a city block and show black inventions and black excellence everywhere. Mm. so that kids know like where you look 
wherever you look, there is black excellence in that, in the filaments of light bulbs, in that mailbox, in ice cream, in the ironing board, in the music you hear, in the the trains going by. There's black ingenuity and excellence everywhere. That was to me, that's a that's a theater set, right? Like so yeah. as as I was thinking through the story, I was thinking about how it would look and how you would tell the story so it felt like you saw images in your head when you said it. So I read it out loud a lot. And I was like, does that evoke an image? Do I feel the story? Do I see it? Mm. Um, so so I I used what I knew in a world that I was unfamiliar and I kind of you know, navigated my way through it in that way. Amazing. Well, the book is beautiful and everything that you just said um, has been super inspirational. And I love what you said about when you decided to make the transition and that you decided to direct and that someone gave you that advice and you just owned it. And you just said, I'm a director. Um, I think so many times as women, we're told we can't do other things. Um, We need to stay in our lane And we often ask for permission. I know I personally often ask for permission, but I know that I'll use that moving forward of really just owning, because you were always a director. So just saying you were directing, um, just open doors versus asking for permission. So I really appreciate you sharing that. I'll tell you something. I remember being at Series Fest a few years ago, and there was a panel of all women executives Mm. And one of the women said that she wanted to, to direct a project and she, you know, and they were kind of looking around, they were like, who should direct this? And, and she said, you know, every man in the room raised his hand. She was like, whether he was like a grip, whether he was like, <laughs> like just like, yeah, I got it. Yeah. And she was like, are you kidding me? I've been in this business for like 25 years and I'm timid. I know how to tell stories. I've produced so much. And she said, I couldn't believe how bold men were in saying like, I'm fearless. I'll try it. You know, why not? Right. And she said, finally, she was like, why not? Mm. Why not? And and that's the, you know, that's the, that's what I'm working very hard to instill in my girls Mm. is to just try. Yeah. Just to be brave and try and say, why not? And also surround yourself with people who will encourage you to say, why not? Yeah. To surround yourself with people who are also brave, who are also taking chances so that everywhere you look, you're being reminded that this is possible. Anything is possible. Mm. So like, I don't even know what's next. I'm like, I don't know, feature film. We'll see. Why not? Like, you know, I, I'm like, if there's a great story to tell and I have a vision for telling it, then I'll, you know, of course I'll surround myself with the greatest minds and then we'll make a beautiful thing. Yeah. And so that's kind of how I, you know, that's how I approached your legacy when I wrote it. I had a great editor. <laughs> I had, you know, Tanya Angel, who is the illustrator, is just a genius. Um, and, and I had, an, you know, an extraordinary agent who was first eyes on everything. Wow. And I was like, I'm surrounded by great people who are guiding me and who are, you know, I, I've got my safety, my safety net. So let's just fly. 
That's awesome. I love it. I want to go write that on a post-it note. I'm surrounded by great people who are guiding me. I love that. Just like as a reminder, you're awesome. Thank you so much. Um, before we hop off, I have one question for you, um, which I was like, should I change this question? Because we haven't talked about TV at all, but I'm going to stick with the original question because we're serious best and we're episodic. So if you could have worked on any television show in history, what would it have been and what would you have done on it? Oh, wow. That is such a good question. It's so, I'm sure the ones from my childhood, but I'll tell you during the pandemic, I got really into Homeland because I thought like, what can't get darker than this? Right. (laughs) COVID, let's go in, let's go deeper. And I, the storytelling and like the, the, women in that show and the like I really loved um the twists and the turns and the boldness and I was like oh I would have loved to direct some episodes on that show Mm. um I I really really I really dug that a lot um I there's there's a yeah you know and I also am like really um I really dug the first season of Dickinson a lot Oh, I didn't watch that. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's, it really, it's super theatrical, but it's so playful. Mm. And I really, really enjoyed that as well. So that's, that's another one that I would love to have, you know, directed on and and to step in and say, let's play in this because it is a beautiful kind of combination of, of theater and television and, and, um, yeah. So I, I would say they're both recent things. I, I wish I could pull something out from my childhood. But no, I think those were great. Those are those are great answers. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for for chatting and telling us your story. Of course. Thanks, Kaylee. Thank you for tuning in for today's episode. SiriusFest is a nonprofit organization, and our work would not be possible without our incredible board of directors, staff, and partners who make programs like this podcast possible. We have ongoing competitions, initiatives, and mentorship programs year-round, so please check us out at seriesfest.com and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to stay up-to-date on announcements. This episode was edited by Neil Trulio with original music by Adam Westbrook.